Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Democracy-ish. I'm Torre. And I'm Danielle Moody. And today we're joined by an old friend of mine, David Frum, who is the author of Trumpocalypse. Welcome, David. Hey, thank you so much. Um, we are coming to you just as the Rashard Brooks case is growing in that prosecutors are laying out the case against the officer. He's going to be charged with felony murder, along with several other things, including kicking Rashard Brooks's dying body as it lay on the ground in the parking lot of Wendy's. And, you know, for those of us like me and Danielle who do not really believe in the possibility of reform, uh, this is yet another plank in that argument is as we're having this national conversation about the problems the epic problems of American policing. Here we see again, cops losing control of a situation, shooting someone in the back and showing such disregard for his life and his body that not only did they not try to save him, but they kicked him while he was down. Danielle, we have that fact pattern. We also know that his partner is going to take uh, the witness stand against him, mm-hmm. which is not something we normally see. Should we do we do we feel more pain and more anger with policing to say like you shot him in the back and then you kicked him like you're in menace to society, or to say we do see shimmers of the possibility of a different future when his partner says, okay, you know what, I'm going to save myself and uh, testify against him. I mean, I'm not encouraged uh, to at all by the fact that uh, the partner is deciding to testify um, because the, the fact of the matter is, where were you when this action was being taken, right? I think that what we're seeing is complete and total depravity uh, across the country as it pertains to law enforcement and this continued dehumanization of black people and of black bodies. This is not, Rashard Brooks, unfortunately, is not the first black person to be on the ground, handcuffed, in custody already, and their body to be desecrated or to be 
riddled with an unimaginable number of bullets, right? So, you know, there are things that we have seen, that we have heard, and what is so heartbreaking, right, again, for his family, we have to understand the re-traumatization that happens over and over again as we go through these stories again and again and again. So to hear that not only did he die, was he murdered the day before his daughter's eight-year eight-year-old birthday, her her birthday, right? But that he died on his way to the hospital. They could have helped him, right? But the idea that then they shot him and didn't even administer any care, but continued to abuse his his bloody body. I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know where to, I don't know where to go with that, but no, I don't have any hope that this, that this other officer is, will, is, you know, going to save his own ass, uh, and testify, uh, against his, his frat brother. I, I don't care. It's, it's very triggering, David, uh, knowing you for a long time. Uh, I know you've been in really, thoughtful observer of what's going on in America, especially as a political person, as a Canadian. Um, what does this Rayshard Brooks part of the general conversation about policing that's going on right now, what does it, what does it signal to you? Well, American police forces are very militarized, very heavily armed compared to police forces anywhere else. Um, and anyone who's traveled outside the United States knows this. Um, partly because American society is so heavily armed. And so, and I, I may be betraying my Canadian bias where you, um, you see this, but there, there are, you, you can imagine a world in which police didn't carry so many weapons. In fact, in which police didn't carry firearms and British police didn't carry firearms until very, very recently. Um, and uh, as and I, I think it's still true that a British police officer has to file a report anytime he or she draws the weapon, whether or not it's discharged. If the weapon leaves the buttoned holster, in Toronto police, the holster is a button, uh, the button holster. Anytime the gun comes out of the holster, you have to write a report. Why did you draw your gun at all? But that's all in the context of a world in which they don't police do not face a heavily armed society. And in uh, I just. I think a big part of this discussion is how do you get, how do you reduce the prevalence of private firearms? How do you make sure that a police knows, the police know that there isn't a Glock in the gov, gov compartment of every car that they stop? Mm-hmm. I mean, that fear of the American citizenry, especially the black and brown citizens, is so palpable so much a part of this moment that's going on yesterday there was a horrific video of one cop holding a gun on five teenage kids as adults stood around them screaming they're just kids but the officer was so afraid of these kids that he had his gun on them there was a video that came out today of a blonde female police officer whose name is stacy and she's talking directly to the camera about how she goes to the drive-thru at McDonald's and she has to wait a while for her food. And she has to wait so long that she loses faith in the quality of the food because she assumes that everyone is out to get her because she's a cop, because of everything that's going on right now. And she refuses the food and says, just give me your coffee. And she presented this as like evidence of like, see what you guys are doing to cops. And I'm like, Oh my God, the victimhood 
that is in American police usually, but especially now, is so frightening. If this woman approached my car on a traffic stop, she's assuming that I'm a mass murderer out to get her. Just And it's really her fear. And I am paying the price for her fear, um, which is... I, I mean, I, I don't see how we reform this without completely burning policing to the ground and starting over with an entirely different approach to public safety. Well, you can never, well, this is one of my political biases, you can never, you, you never have the power to make things new. Um, you can never start from a blank piece of paper. You always start from where you are. And any process of reform, this is one of the themes of, of my book, has to begin with where you are, what's possible, what's feasible. Um, you know, with with police fear of the citizenry, there are parts of it that are irrational and bigoted and biased, and there are parts of it that are rational. Americans carry a lot of firearms. That when that um, in other societies, when that police, I didn't see that 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 particular video, but when the police confronts the five, five teenagers, um, and he's fusing together some combination of his own prejudiced feelings but also his own awareness that in any group of five Americans over the age of 12, statistically, there are probably two firearms. Uh, those, those five boys or kids may not have had the firearms, but you know, there are 300 million firearms in this society. And uh, about half of American households have got one. And, uh, and they often show up in crazy places like the glove compartments of people's cars. And police, police confront that. Um, and in other societies, they don't. I know, you know they but I, ha- I I need to say something here because this the 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 fear factor here is where I get incredibly troubled because if you are going into a job that you know is dangerous and yet every every time is I fear for my life I fear for my life maybe you should be a male person right <laughs> maybe you should maybe you should go into a completely and totally different industry because the reality is is that if we want to break things down statistically there are more white people that are armed in this country than mm. there are black yeah. folks mm-hmm. and so the idea that you would roll up on a group of five black boys and assume that one of them has a gun but you're rolling past I don't know the Dylan roofs of the world and you're patting them on the head because their complexion offers them protection from you um, is is problematic to me. And I think that the the idea that we have given so much deference to police officers, oh, their job is so dangerous. Okay, so is a firefighter. I don't see anybody else trying to burn down fire departments or trying to harass the fire department. No, because they put out fires regardless of who the hell's house is on fire, right? But the problem with police is that they only protect people that look like them. And I think that we, until we can move away from the historical context and understanding of policing, which is based in the slave catcher mentality, we're never going to be able to build something that is new or different or innovative when we can't change the psyche of the people that are going after this job in the first place. I mean, David, of course you are right that the overprevalence of handguns in America is a huge problem in this and a huge problem in modern America. But there's also a way that cops are purposefully traumatized by their training uh, 
to to fully believe that every moment could be their last and if they don't approach us as if they are warriors and we are to be killed rapidly or one tiny false move you're dead that is not i mean like the overwhelming majority of police calls don't require violence, don't require armed guns. We need to have an entirely different system that does not send guns out in every moment. The idea that any person on the highway who is going five miles over the speed limit deserves to possibly have a gun in their face is insane. And we could police a lot of these situations, especially a lot of this seems to happen around traffic stops. We could police mm-hmm. uh, the the highways and the streets with cameras and drones that remove the police officers altogether so they don't have to be fearful. Um, but just yeah. sending people out with guns to any little call is part of the problem. Well, no. So when you say you want to burn it down, what does that metaphor mean in real life? To me, and we talked a lot about this last week, um, that means starting with an entirely different public safety system um, that right now we have a system where we have crime generalists who are running around with guns and a warrior mentality addressing a wide array of situations and generally addressing many of them very poorly. If we could have crime uh, or situational specificists. I mm-hmm. am expert at dealing in DV. I am ex- expert in dealing with a post-murder situation. I am expert in investigating a robbery. And so you go in, you know, I am expert in dealing with mental health issues. So you go in and deal with those specific situations, not with a gun, but with uh, an incredible amount of expertise. And there may be an extremely small group of people who have the firearms, who are able to deal with a current violent situation. Um, ra- but for the most part, we are over we are over policing. We are incentivizing officers in many ways to make arrests rather than to have public safety. Right. I, I think as we talked about yeah. last week, yeah. um, officers a- are, 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 they get overtime for every yeah. arrest they make that helps them advance there, you know, there's quotas. So, I mean, like they're not actually incentivized even to create public safety. They're incentivized to arrest people that creates an offensive force. We don't need an offensive force um, in most of America. Well, tell me if you think, as I, as I listen to you, is it just an analogy with another dysfunctional part of American society, which is the healthcare system. Mm. That as, as a doctor, you, um, supposing you have a patient who makes it to 90 and never sees you or sees you once a year, you get nothing from that guy, but that guy is your greatest success. Mm. Right? That's, uh, uh, the, the person who is in hospital every day from their from the time they turn 55 and then with one illness after another, that person is your most lucrative source of income. Mm. Um, and uh, now, of course, doctors are, they are, they are not just motivated by money. Human beings aren't. So, but at the margin, you know, that the, the patient who makes it to 90 and sees you once a year for the checkup um, is a less interesting proposition to you. And if you're in the, one of the things that people have often talked about is there's some way that we can change the way our health search system is paid. So that you get money for people being well, 
being well and living to an old age and not getting being paid by transaction. And it sounds like and this is, I didn't know about that. You get paid by, you get overtime for arrest, but if you're being paid by an arrest, obviously you're going to have more arrests when, you know, I, I have a friend who, um, whose father was a career police officer in mid-sized city and his father, he said at the end of his career, his father had drawn his gun once in his career, and that was because there was a rabid dog in the neighborhood. He never fired the dog, the, the gun, but he drew it once. Yeah, I mean, I think that yeah, we need that. that all of that is about changing incentive structures, right? And what it is that we incentivize in this country. And for for doctors, you know, you have a lot of people. We have an opioid crisis, right, on top of all the other crises that we have because doctors are incentivized to push pills, right? They're incentivized mm-hmm. to give you a pill for X instead of prescribing, I don't know, an hour in the outdoors or for you to eat better or for you to do, you know, a little bit of exercise and give you that prescription. They're like, no, here's this for heartburn. Here's this for your back. Here's that, you know, for whatever, because that's where the incentive comes from. And I think that the same is true with policing. Why do we have quotas on the amount of people that you can arrest? Wouldn't it be a good day as a police officer if I had didn't have to draw my gun, nope. if I didn't arrest anyone, if everyone was driving safely. And like, you know, if I, if, if, oh, maybe, maybe I did go get that cat out of the tree or help a kid home whose bike broke down, you know, like maybe that should be the, you know, but part the, of the root the of the evil is the broken windows philosophy, right? Is that the smallest infraction can lead you to catching uh, or stopping something much larger. And that then criminalizes every citizen. Most citizens try very hard all day long to to uh, stay within the law. And most people break small laws all the time, but that's not indicative of them being major criminals, but officers are now are trained uh, you know, and given a mindset through this broken windows philosophy of thinking, you know, if somebody jumps a turnstile, they could be a murderer. If somebody goes five miles over the speed limit, they could be a murderer and you should approach them that way. David, well, this, go ahead. I guess, is, this is something that is a theme of mine, both my work and other things. It's, it's something that when you said broken windows. So I'm, I will, at the end of this month, turn 60. And one of the things that happened as you move through life is you increasingly find yourself living in a different country from the country in which you were educated to live. And so one of the things that, um, as I've been watching this debate and I watch it on Fox, Fox news, which is watched by people who know older than myself, uh, this used to be a very, this used to be a much more violent and crime affected country than it is today. Um, that Americans don't believe this, but, your chance of being the victim of a crime is probably lower today than at any time in the organized history of the United States. The, the, we're at the lowest level homicide level in a hundred years. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and the statistics are not very good before that. So we probably are just when we know, given what we know about the 19th century and how few crimes were recorded, probably the lowest crime level in the history of the American Republic. Um, but if you're my age, you spent your 20s, or maybe your, even your 30s, in a period where crime, where there were 2,000 homicides a year in New York City instead of the present 250. And it's hard to adjust to a new reality. And, that, and I think in area after area of public life, that one of, uh, one of the things that is a driver is we have people who are, and having politicians in their 70s makes it even worse. It's bad enough when, for those of us who are about to be 60, never mind what, what if I were about to be 80, um, that, they have, that you have, 
you, you're governed, you have a country that is governed by people from the previous generation and the generation before that who cannot absorb uh, ways that the country, the ways that things are, are different. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, David, mm-hmm. every week we end the show um, saying that we'll be back next week if we still have a country. <laughs> and more and more, it's been like, you know, that's, you know, at first it was a joke. And it was more funny. And more it's like, it's, it's, not, it's funny. not really a joke. <laughs> and the subtitle of your book, Trumpocalypse, is Restoring American Democracy. So I assume that you agree that we are losing. Uh, our democracy because of Trump. So what can we do? What do you propose we do to begin to restore American democracy? Well, I, Trumpocalypse is full of a series of practical suggestions, big and small. But before I get to any of those, I, I want to say something about this, This your your final question. And I've, I've heard you pose this on um, in video and podcast. Um, I am not an optimist, optimist by temperament, but one of the things I have felt more and more strongly through the Trump years is I have become an optimist by conviction. And that the um, the America you believe in, it's underneath the rust and the dirt, it's there. And in fact, it, one of the things that has been going on, this is I think going to be one of the most important legacies, and I hope maybe the only legacy of the Trump presidency, is that you're seeing one of these periodic revivals of the American conscience that um, glows at intervals uh, every every generation or so. Um, what Trump did is, you know, life is full of petty cruelties. And it's easy to just take them as part of life, especially if you're on the weather side of uh, the fair weather side of those cruelties. If you're a man looking at the cruelties that come to women, if you're old looking at cruelties that come to the young, if you're more affluent looking at those based by the less affluent at black and white, uh, native-born immigrant. So Trump, what Trump does every day is he takes something that was a petty cruelty and he puts it on the jumbotron in the middle mm. of Times Square and he mm. makes it by a million. I mean, did people make casual comments about the appearances of women sometimes in a way that maybe they shouldn't? Okay, so he just does that times a million and you all have to look at it. And he's the president, the most visible human being on earth. You can't not look at it. And as you look at it, you have to ask yourself, so what do I think about it? I can't ignore it. It's too big. And millions of people are saying, I don't like it. It's not nice. Shouldn't be like that. And so we've had, first with Me Too, and now with this second round of Black Lives Matter building on uh, at the end in 2014, 2015. These are, they remind me of like the temperance movement and uh, votes for women um, uh, in the century ago. They, they don't exactly have political agendas. I mean, you can't, there's no Me Too law that anybody's right. going to pass, um, that they are cultural changes like the temperance movement says. So just the temperance movement said, just people, men, drink less. Don't, be, don't spend all your money at the saloon. Don't beat your wives when you come home. Just drink less. Promise to drink less. Um, and I think you see them all over the place with um, arising from this, that there's this kind of impulse to, to do things better. And I think the, the theme of the 2020s, I, I sometimes think that the theme of the 2020s is it may not be a period of enormous party political movement. Um, it may be much more a period of cultural and social movement um, and powered above all by the uh, departure of the baby boom generation from active political life. And I say that as someone who's born in 1960, the last year of the Eisenhower, these are my people, so I can talk about them. <laughs> You know, I think that it's interesting because 
I do believe that Trump has put everything on the jumbotron. And I do believe that most people are repulsed by the behavior, are repulsed by the consistent insults, um, by the blatant racism and discrimination. But I'm so confused. I'm so confused by the 40%. I am confused by the 40% of people in this country, and and sometimes between 40 and 45%. That's just a little too close to 50 to me that will follow this man off of a cliff. That they are literally right now signing waivers that say if they fall ill in Oklahoma from the coronavirus because he doesn't want them to wear masks because he thinks they're creepy, um, that... They don't get well, to sue. I'm, well, I'm so confused well, by well, that. Well, let's make it a little more, let's make the confusion a little sharper for David, because not only is there 40% of America, but uh, Trump will win the white vote by a significant margin, by at oh, least yes. 10 points. Mm-hmm. And he will win white men by a very comfortable like margin. Like 30? <laughs> can you, and, and I know I know you, I know you're not part of that group, but can you help explain Yeah. That group? Well, those are two different. So let me, let me deal with Danielle's point first. This is something that is a bit of Trump brainwashing that you you need that he's implanting in even his opponents. You, when Trump is getting 42, 45% approval, that is not all people who love him. That the, the people who will follow him through thick and thin, um, that's maybe a third of the country. So that he's doing, because remember how in trouble he was through the Republican primaries through early on. What he's taking is a core group of people who are really committed to him and to his message and adding to them, you know, the years from 2017, 2018, first half of 2019 were very good years. Um, If you ask people uh, questions, how are you, how are your finances? Are you optimistic about the future? What do you think of your personal health care? You got stronger answers in 2017, 2018, first half of 2019 than in any year since 1998. The right track, wrong track numbers. I mean, that. Um, so he it was short lived because his his protectionist trade policies caught up with him and the economy began to get soft in the second half of 2019. And we're probably heading for economic trouble anyway. But he's adding a kind of um, voting for the status quo group to his core base. And I think one of the things that he's discovering right now, I mean, the president's probably at about 38 right now uh, with the pandemic, that, mm-hmm. that the people who are saying, I don't know, things look pretty good. He seems to be, I don't like the way he talks, but can't argue with success. Those, that, they're included in the 45%. Um, so I agree with Danielle that the core Trump group is represents a problem for American society, especially since they get a lot more than 33% of the political power. And a lot of the book is about that. Um, but I just, as you, and it's a serious problem, but you don't want to make the problem bigger than it really is because mm-hmm. a lot of his support is pretty contingent. And he's, it's going to be a bad year for him in 2020, I'm confident. Um, well, it's already know, been so, a bad year for a majority of us. So I really yeah. would like it for it to be a bad year for Donald Are Trump. You, you're, you're predicting a loss. I think it's going to be quite a bad loss. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think we get 60, 40 blowouts anymore because of right. negative polarization. But I think it's going to be, remember, last time he got less of the vote than Al Gore, John Kerry, or Mitt Romney. Uh, and barely more. He got half a point more than Michael Dukakis. Now, he used it very efficiently. It was placed well. But he, he this idea that he had a lot of people behind him, that's a lie that he tells. Um, and 
be careful but believe in it. Yeah. You know, um, as to the support of, of um, uh, whites and men, I mean, Republicans have, have had the white vote since the middle 1960s. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there is, it's, it's a mixture of um, resentments of various kinds. It's a mixture of uh, the distribution of the vote where whites are much more likely to live in rural America and to be rural people who are sort of cut off um, from some, some developments anyway. Um, and we, we live in a time of, not literal because it's a peaceful time, but of group of moral and cultural group on group conflict. And so um, what, what we have seen is as America has become more diverse, whites have become a more self-conscious group. You know, it didn't used to be in the North, in the North, 50 years ago, uh, the most important political divisions were between whites, right? They're Catholics versus Protestants, um, uh, other such groups. As, as whites have become a more diminished group, they've acquired a, a group solidarity. Um, and that is going to be a factor in the politics of the 21st century. Um, and that is going to be a very difficult thing to manage. And I talk in the book about how some, some ways to manage it are. But the, the, I think the goal of a future of a politics for the 21st century is to drain is not to deny that there's going to be group on group conflict, um, not to deny that for a long time to come, different groups are going to vote in different ways uh, because of culture and perceived interest. You need to take the toxicity out of it and you need to change the rules about what's legitimate in group competition. So um, I'm so the question is not how do you change the way white voters or rural white voters vote. The question is, how do you make it sure that their votes don't count for any more than anybody else's? Mm. And how do you make it so that votes are weighted in a more equal way? Um, those are things we can do. And one of the things I, um, as a conservative type of reformer and a reformer type of conservative, am interested in are things you can do that are feasible. Don't Not miracles, but things that can actually pass House, Senate, get a presidential signature and make a difference. But I mean, uh, right there, I mean, like we have... I mean, because we have a Republican Party in Washington that is largely gone off the deep end, uh, that is in constant attack mode, especially the Mitch McConnell uh, cabal in the Senate, there is nothing. There is nothing that that could be done. There's nothing that they would allow in terms of reform, even on the issue of policing. When I think we see millions and millions of Americans rising up, the Republicans' idea is probably like, is pretty much summed up to, eh, we'll give you basically nothing. You know, the Democrats will give you, you know, a little something, but not nearly enough. But Republicans' suggestion is really almost nothing. It's not even not incremental. Have- it's more, it's more, it's more like a certificate that they would like to sign, right? Like they're, they're, they're saying, oh, ban, ban chokeholds, but, but, you know, but, it, but if the officer's life is being threatened, then you can <laughs> use the, then you can what, use the chokehold. So, I'm like, oh, got it. Okay. Let me me give you a couple of examples of things I have in mind. Um, And and these are not dramatic changes. These are just changes to make the system work a little better. So if the Democrats take um, the Senate in 2020, which I I think is a a fairly uh, likely contingency, you know, the right, what has happened in the U.S. Senate, the thing that makes Mitch McConnell is, is that um, the population, getting a majority of the population is concentrating in about 15 states. And so the Senate, which is always a lopsided body, is becoming ever more so. And we have added in recent years a practice where the filibuster, which used to be an unusual thing, has become a normal part of life. So it's 60 votes for everything. So 
People who listen to political podcasts know this, but most of our fellow citizens don't. The filibuster is not in the Constitution. It's not a law. It's a rule of the Senate. Um, it's been amended before. Day one, just get rid of it. That is more dangerous for Democrats than for Republicans because the likelihood of Dems, because of the concentration, especially of Democratic voters, the likelihood for Dems of having uh, over 50 uh, senators is extraordinarily low. The likelihood one day for Republicans getting 55 or even 58 senators is very high at some point point in history. Two two answers to that. The first is – Well, the likelihood of getting over 50 is greater for Republicans than for Democrats. The likelihood for Democrats of getting over 60 is zero. Yeah. So Mm. so uh, what the the world with the filibuster is a world where um, the the world with uh, with the filibuster is a world where the Democrats govern never. The world with without the filibuster is a world where the Democrats govern somewhat less than half the time. (laughs) So, so I, I, if I were me, I would rather say, you know, I'd rather I'll take my chance on governing sometimes rather than governing now. But if you look at this, but if you, but if you look at the Senate in a defensive way, which I think in some regards it's it was meant to be, um, would you like to be able to prevent Republicans from doing some of the things, or occasionally run into situations in history where we can't prevent them from doing any of the crazy things that they want to do? So here, then I would back that up. I would join to that two other ideas that are in the book. One is that um, once the filibuster is gone, it takes a majority of the House, a majority of the Senate, plus a presidential uh, signature to make a state out of the um, residential areas of the District of Columbia. The Constitution says there has to be a federal district, and it says it can be no bigger than 10 square miles, but it doesn't set a minimum size. So you could shrink the federal district to the area around the White House and the Congress and make where I live uh, part of a state which would be um, urban and would that would go far to con- uh, to balance out the um, increasing concentration of Senate power in rural hands that has taken place over the past 20 years. D.C. has more people than Wyoming or Vermont and yep. soon will have more than North Dakota or Alaska. Um, and uh, and if, and very conceivably by 2040, we'll have more than South Dakota. It could, it could be like not even in one of the, the five smallest states. And it's richer than any of them. Um, and that makes the Senate more ur- more urban. It gives a fighting chance to have uh, more non-white senators, um, and it would oh, it would deal somewhat with the concerns you raise about the defensive quality of the Senate. And then the second thing I propose in the book is uh, one of the important um, powers of the Senate is the ability to confirm um, poor quality presidential nominations, and we have seen that power hugely abused. Uh, President Trump's about to send up a number three person in uh, an undersecretary of defense for policy. The number three person, it just seems like a complete lunatic. Just a Tata is his name. And um, he accused, at one point, he accused John Brennan of sending secret messages on cable TV to in, um, put in motion the assassination of President Trump. It just seems like a crackpot. But he'll, he, he's likely to be confirmed. Um, I, I propose that we shrink the number of Senate confirmed appointments and have a much uh, have the civil service jobs rise higher in the bureaucracy to, to create sort of a more stable stable federal workforce and a more stable federal decision makers. We're not as vulnerable to a bad president as the fed, as the upper reaches of the federal government are now. Um, I feel like America has been changed by Trump um, for a long time. I think that there's been a deep uh, 
stain on the spirit of the country as if we have been through trauma and mm-hmm. been ripped apart as a country and our worst impulses brought up to the surface and it will take a considerable amount of time to heal some of the wounds. I mean, it's it's a cold civil war, is it not? And that it's going to take time to put America back together again. Not that it was perfect or united before. He played on long-running divisions, but uh, he, he's made it far worse, and we are in deep pain, and it's going to take time to heal some of that pain. Um, President Obama used to call in groups of journalists on, at irregular intervals to hear what he was on his mind. And uh, I, I was on that list, so I, w- I went to a number of these sessions. And by happenstance, I went to the last, the last one. Uh, so it was, it was about a week before Inauguration Day in 2017. And the, the metal um, bleachers, is that the word I want, they were being built on Pennsylvania Avenue for the parade. And I remember walking um, the White House, where I'd worked every day for a couple of years. Um, uh, I'm not usually in that part of town these days. Walking you know, to that familiar thing through these bleachers toward this appointment. And I felt like, I don't know if you've seen the series The Man in the High Castle, um, I felt like I somehow jumped into some other insane timeline where Donald Trump is going to be president. Now, I voted against Obama twice, um, but I always thought of him as sort of a normal American president, uh, a little more expensive than um, would have been my preference. But, uh, but and obviously, um, a hugely capable and attractive personality. And that, that was one of the reasons, of course, for these meetings was he just sort of, you know, he sort of over- overwhelmed you with his intellect and his force of character. Um, and you were sort of beaten into submission for a little while. That was the <laughs> presidents do it. Um, uh, and, and, and what happened was we, the, the, something that I, to shorten the story, he was un- uncharacteristically late. Um, and so we are in the, the group of us are in, um, the Roosevelt room for about 45 minutes. And of course they've taken away our cell phones. And so you have absolutely no idea whether it's a, there's a terrorist attack or something. And you just sit there thinking in this quiet room, six people don't know each other that well, just something. I said, the country's been diagnosed with some fatal illness and, you know, we're not going to be in the space again. And this is just, and I remember the, the night of the uh, I remember the night of the election. I was up very late and was in a television room, calling my calling home, and my wife was asleep and the older kids were out. I, I got my youngest daughter on the phone and just like, how do you face up to this? That this con artist, this gangster, this um, is going to be president, sit in the chair, uh, have the nuclear command. I've never. I think one of the things that has powered me through. I've now written two Trump books. And I don't like thinking about it. But the, I I want never to lose the feeling of the wrongness of that. The mm. uh, that it's it's ne- never. It's, we're always going to be the country that did this. And although you know the next president will go around the world vowing to the people of Earth, never, never again will the country mix tequila and quaaludes again. We swear to you, we'll never do that. <laughs> that we'll always be the people who did this. I think, you know, um, it, but it's funny because um, I think I remember when the people of Germany offered to us and said, 
don't do it. We've been here before. We've seen this before. Don't open that door. It's like the rest of the world was watching a horror movie in a theater and everybody is like, don't Don't do it. He's behind the door. Don't do it. He has the butcher knife. You know, he's coming for your head. And America was just like, no, I think it's going to be okay. I think it's fine. And they opened the door. But I think that you know, history is a is a is a funny thing. Is a funny thing, and I don't know how long this stain is going to follow us I, ar- w- a- around. I really don't. Within that <laughs> analogy, I like I like to imagine like you know Fox News as like you know the little twin demented girls who are standing up to the side like <laughs> open the door, open the door, open the door. <laughs> yeah. yeah, pretty much. <laughs> well, fo- fo- look, Depar- Donald Trump's departure will be the best thing that ever happened to Fox News. Because the problem they have, as long as he's mm, there, yes, yes. is they have to be on defense. Yep. Right? And, and every once in a while, and, and it's just a strain. They just, and then their whole things where they just have to pretend that things didn't happen that day or that week. Whereas once he's gone, they can go back to fulminating and criticizing and getting upset about things. And uh, and, and they, they'll be happy. And the other thing to remember about this always is on any given night, there may be two to three million people watching Fox News. Now, that doesn't mean it's there are only two to three million people in America who watch Fox News, or some people watch once a week. But there's a, a pretty finite universe of people who watch it at all. And in a country of 330 or so million, uh, they are not a majority. Now, that uh, the disinformation is spread via Facebook and other modes of second and third hand communication. Um, but the idea of um, that, that Trump is a con artist, and one of the things he tries to sell is the illusion of his own popularity and success. And when that illusion is popped, I think the world may look like a somewhat different place. Mm. Um, David Frum, uh, I've known you a long time, really appreciate your contribution to the political dialogue in general and to my projects here and before here. So thank you so much. The new book is called Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy. Congratulations on that. How many books has it been? Uh, I've written uh, two on Trump, one called Trumpocracy and one called called Trumpocalypse. And I wrote six books before that. There you go. All right. Um, Happy and happy (laughs) pre-birthday. Thank you very much. Yes, yes, yes. You're almost 60. I'm almost 50. Daniel's almost 20. So it's a big big difference here. uh, Just so as not to go into the Fox News night, I'm I'm trying to set my, I'm marking the birthday by trying to set a personal chin up record. So that's, uh, that's what are you at? What are you going to be at? I've got, we're, we're, we're not going to use he's, numbers. He's, I'm, I'm he's like, good. we're not going to use numbers. Numbers don't define good. me. They're pretty numbers good. Numbers don't a, define David. Leave it alone. <laughs> no, I, I, there are a few. There are a few. I'm, trying to try. I'm going for, for 150 in an hour. That's 150. Oh, okay. Jesus, All right. Okay. 150 yeah. in an hour. All right. All right. Chin-ups are hard. Good for you. Congratulations. All right. Thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I'm Torre. And I'm Danielle Moody. Thank you to our guest, David Frum. We will be back next week if... There's there still is a, a country. country. Pray about it. You can't really, be sure. Genuinely pray. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. 
Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities. Healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country. Immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun. And candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 